Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. My guest today, I'm so excited to have her on. You understand why in just a few minutes. She has been dubbed the common sense vet due to her deliberate common sense approach to creating vibrant health for, com for companion animals that's been embraced by millions of pet lovers all around the world, making her the most followed vet on Facebook with over 22, or sorry, over 2.2 million followers. She spent her career as a small animal clinician, empowering animal guardians to make an in intentional lifestyle decisions to enhance the well-being of their animals. Co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, yay, The Forever Dog, she writes and lectures extensively and serves as a, as a wellness consultant for a variety of health-oriented organizations. She's the first veterinarian to give a TED Talk and on species-appropriate nutrition, which has been a lifelong passion of hers. Dr. Karen Becker, welcome to Free Thinking with Montel. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'm so psyched to have you on because I, I have a couple of really deep personal questions I'm going to ask you in a few minutes. Now, we, we talk a lot. And we're going to have a lot to talk about. So let's start first with what made you become a veteran? Uh, well, yes. Um, I, I was put on this earth to treat animals. And I knew that from a very young age. And thank goodness I had really, I have beautiful, compassionate, loving parents. I grew up in Iowa, very focused on education and learning. And, and I had two teachers as parents who said, it's important that you do something that you love to do. So you do it well and excellently, but also that that fire in your heart never goes away. And I love animals and I love being a veterinarian and I love the uh, ability to, to give animals a second chance at feeling good in their bodies. So it's exactly what I was born to do. And this is something you wanted to do from the time you were a child. Yes. I, I knew I was going to work with animals. At first, I thought I would just be a wildlife rehabilitator. And that was, I became licensed when I was 14. And I thought I would just treat wildlife. You Wild became licensed what? At 14? I did. I did. Wow. I, yeah. So, and then my uh, undergrad degree is in wildlife biology. I'm pretty passionate about taking care of animals that don't have owners, that don't have anyone caring for them. So our, our wildlife and our endangered species, Mother Nature doesn't provide veterinary care. So at a very young age, I was pretty compelled to save and rescue wild animals to start. I also grew up working at my local humane society. So I have a very soft spot for rescued animals, homeless animals, abandoned animals in general. So being able to treat all those species has come in handy because my heart goes out to all of them. So I've been a busy girl. <laughs> Just, I mean, just so our viewers can understand, I mean, give me the, give me the breadth, the range of species that you've treated. Oh my goodness. Well, as a state licensed wildlife rehabilitator, I got very familiar with raising all sorts of indigenous birds. So birds, I love birds, everything from sparrows to eagles, I have rehabilitated and raised. I did my internship at the Berlin Zoo. So of course I've treated lions, tigers, and bears at the oh zoo. <laughs> oh my. And uh, reptiles are near and dear to my heart as well. Um, so everything from alligators to snakes, amphibians, you know, frogs and salamanders right up my alley. So uh, I have treated everything except actually ocean species. Growing up in, in Iowa, not a whole lot of uh, ability to, to be able to master my skills with marine uh, with marine life, unfortunately. So my expertise stops sadly at that border. I love um, our, our fellow friends in the sea, but I'm not confident to treat them. But everything else, mammalian and birds, I'm in. I was just, I did see a little guy walking behind you. Yes. Who's that? <laughs> That's Shuby. She's on the cover of our book. She's a rescue dog actually from Canada. Um, she was a dog that was in Northern Territory, which they have a, a, they have an overpopulation issue of wild dogs. And she was taken to, her parents were shot and they found mm. this tiny litter of, of orphan abandoned dogs. And she was one of them. And actually FedEx arranged a delivery and we got them here in Nova Scotia. And Shuby is a rescued mushkadoodle, a mixed breed dog that from indigenous dogs in Northern Territory. 
And do, were you guys not just, you, you bore the brunt of Ian, right? At the tail end of Ian? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We were hit. And actually this entire area lost power. We were fortunate. Our studio did not go down, but a lot of people had a lot of devastating damage. Um, same with Florida and your environment, just devastating. Just a little bit north of us, but I'm just, I'm just concerned that a lot of the, the animals and pets make it out? Or? Yeah, yes. And you know, it's interesting. Wild animals, but even dogs and cats, animals are wired with an amazing sixth sense to be able to sense barometric pressure change. If you ever see Montel animals like running up a, a mountain or getting away, follow them because <laughs> yeah. they know they know where to go during all sorts of natural disasters. So the animals of course prior to any type of natural disaster they're very cued in and they're aware of their fight or flight and we need to be able to to honor that. But that's terrible for dogs that have storm anxiety, right? A lot of dogs have horrible anxiety pertaining to lightning and thunder and wind and rain, so it's stressful. This any type of natural disaster is wildly stressful for humans and the animals that that they live with both. Wow. You know, um, I, I, I look back, I'm just thinking about looking back at your life. I mean, you have been around animals every single day. So, you know, you probably, and I'll, I'll ask you one question. You don't have to be political about it in your answer, but what is your concept? Now, this is 2022. Why do we have, to, we got computers that can give you a replication of anything that you want on the planet. Why do we have to have places and facilities where people walk around looking at an animal that's miserable and angry mm. and caged? Why? Well, you and I are in the same camp. In fact, one of the reasons that I felt so strongly about getting some of my under my uh, my veterinary training at a zoo was to be able to identify how much kept captivity of course is jail and they can be beautiful jails but they're jails so and my frust yeah exactly it's not and it's a lifetime of taking the strongest animals you know we find animals in the wild the best representation of their species with the best dna that should be replicated in their natural environment for those strong genes to be passed on but we blow dart them drug them and then put them in a cage for the rest of their life and there are some, drug them in the cage for the rest of them. Yeah, life. well, exactly. Yeah, and or medicate them for anxiety because of their overwhelming PTSD from being, uh, you know, in jailed. Of course, yeah. my my belief as a federally licensed wildlife rehabilitator is that we have plenty of animals, unfortunately, that naturally undergo either infectious disease, injury, or illness that causes them to not be released in the wild. And my personal viewpoint, not being political, is that rather than take strong, resilient, healthy animals and put them in cages, we take our permanently injured wildlife that could not, let's say they're blind in one eye, so they're unable to hunt adequately. Maybe they have an arthritic situation in a limb that caused them to not be able to be able to run at full speed. Those animals that no longer can be released in the wild, Having those animals be in an, as, as naturalistic environment as we can and feed them a biologically appropriate diet, animals that can't be released rather than putting them to sleep, let's use them for specimens. But actually taking completely healthy animals and caging them, I'm with you. I have a problem with that as well. And especially now, I just wonder, especially when you look at cities that are going through so much turmoil with their budgets and being able to you know, finance and, and, and come up with the amount of money that they need to take care of them. That's why that's one of the first places that kind of gets snipped on that budget list, is it not? Well, I think a lot of things environmentally, caring for animals, especially wild animals, if they're exotics in a zoo situation, that's one manageable situation. But you have to remember that our own indigenous wildlife here in North America, there isn't a budget. The Department of the Interior that holds the U.S. Fish and Wildlife licenses, no one is giving out grants or money to care for our own local eagles that are hit by a car or bobcats that are hit by a car. All of those animals, wildlife rehabilitators like myself, we're paying for the rehabilitation of those wild animals. We are paying for out of pocket. There is no government funding. So there's all sorts of issues pertaining to caring for our animals that usually become injured because of human interference we're left with no budget for those animals. And that's one of the reasons that I became a wildlife rehabilitator and a veterinarian, because I feel so strongly that if I'm capable of caring for these animals, I need to do my part. But I agree with you. Um, we, we do have an obligation because we are taking away their natural habitat. We, we're not caring for them. We're giving them enough wild spaces as wild animals that, yeah, I agree with you that more could be done in caring for the animals on this earth. 
And now, what do you think about over the course of the last couple of years? I mean, you know, here, here comes COVID. Boom. People are stuck at home. And there were a lot of people who rushed out to get a pet. And, and then all of a sudden COVID's over and they're like, hmm, I don't hmm. think I really want this pet walking around in my house. I don't know. They got an attitude because they figured they can get back out and go. And the pet became a nuisance to them. And so there's a flood of animals being dropped off at, at uh, centers and places and being euthanized. I mean, what do you say to people before they, they make the conscious decision to bring yeah. an animal like that into their home? I would counsel the same, whether you're deciding to have a human baby, you don't decide after make, taking on the lifetime commitment of nurturing another creature that you are responsible for. You can trade in your cars. If you, you know, if you want to get something new and upgrade, you can get a new couch and you can get a new car getting a new, there's no such thing as disposable life. So deciding that you decided to have a baby two or four legged two years ago, and it's just not fitting into your lifestyle now. Unfortunately, you made that commitment, and I believe that you need to think through the level and the depth of the commitment of caring for another animal, especially at least kids grow up and hopefully become socially and morally healthy and go on to live their own independent lives. Dogs and cats, we are, we are stewards of them. We are their committed caretakers, their entire existence, which means their entire quality of life revolves around us making good decisions. So what I would say is you can't fall in love with with a dog or cat you see or have a vision or watch a movie and get inspired to get a pet and not commit to the fact that this is a this is a lifetime commitment you don't go out after you go to work you come home because your dog or cat's there waiting for you and they deserve to have a quality life with appropriate exercise and emotional relationships in terms of being social needs and interaction it's our job to supply all that to animals when we make that lifetime commitment. So I am heartbroken at the number of people that didn't think through their obligation in terms of making a life, a life, a lifetime commitment to another animal. It's heartbreaking to me. That is. And, and, you know, let's, let's, let's stay on this topic about, you know, uh, our pandemic. I mean, you know, when you look back at it now, people went through issues and I'm talking about, let's talk about the, the good animal parent who has one at home, but, Good, but maybe not focused on some things that they should mm. focus on. You know, the same things that we went through during the pandemic, mm-hmm. we put our pets through. You know, we spend more time at home. I, I was looking back, Ray, we, we unfortunately lost a pet um, after 15 years, oh. uh, a, a toy poodle, uh, back in December. Still bothers me even today. Yeah. Um, but I remembered that during the pandemic, I would, you know, there were a couple of times when I spent maybe two or three days inside. Now I'm in Miami. I have MS. I have an issue with the heat. Mm-hmm. I'm very sensitive to heat, especially down here. I'm telling you the temperatures can hit, you know, 90, 95, three days in a row. And the pavements are just burning up. So I didn't want to take my little doggy out, put his feet on the pavement during the day, but I would go out late at night. Yeah. But he didn't get as much. And then there were a couple of times that we decided, let's just walk him on the mezzanine in our building, which is air conditioned. Mm-hmm. So we were walking back and forth in the same spot. Um, but there are a lot of people who didn't pay attention to the fact that the same anxiety they had from being closed in, yep. the pet was getting that same anxiety because they weren't getting walked as much. Yeah, They weren't, they weren't being able to socialize as much because mm-hmm. people, whether you, you know you, you wanted to follow social distancing or you had a mask, you didn't walk up to other people. And I, I caught a couple of times at my previous pet, um, Max was like, yeah, he didn't like the mask, baby. He didn't yeah. like that on he other bet. people. He didn't care yeah. about it on him. But sure. he saw it on the person, you go crazy. And I was like, you know, yeah. I, I knew he was stressing out. What do you say to people about how they should pay attention to those kind of cues from their pet? Mm-hmm. First of all, really good for you to recognize that a puppy's early exposure, their early socialization is critical, Montel. It's the difference. The first, in fact, Suzanne Clothier, who is a dog uh, expert in terms of early dog development, we interviewed her for the Forever Dog book, and she has raised over 15,000 guide dogs for special services. And her statement is, a dog's personality is set between genetics and day 57, 
the work that you've done when dogs are a little at the breeder or the rescue, if they see people in masks at four, five, six, seven weeks of age, if they see umbrellas and loud sounds, if they get all of this exposure as little guys, they grow up thinking, I've seen that. This is in my bank of experiences. It was nothing to worry about. If we spend the time, the first six months of our dog's lives daily working on giving them social experiences, they don't bark at anything because they're so well adjusted, having gone, gone through so many different life experiences, nothing bothers them. They're like, oh, look, a guy dressed up in a giant dragon suit. All right. Versus a dog like, hur, 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 hur. that's a reaction. Like, holy cats, what is that? So dogs that have not been appropriately socialized, it's really important that we don't throw them in because they're just like you mentioned, their anxiety is going to be off the charts. So if we are able to be preventive, proactive pet parents, let's do that. Let's get our puppies and rescue dogs well socialized early on during that critical period between birth and six months. Let's work on intentionally creating experiences that minimize stress. So dogs have these flexible, resilient personalities where it's no big thing. If we can do that, let's do that. If that's not an option, if you rescued a dog that has never left the apartment building, then everything's scary. Santa dressed up is scary. The floating pumpkins are scary. The neighbor that wears a UPS hat scary. A person in a wheelchair scary because these dogs have never had these experiences. If we can cultivate experiences at a pace where our unsocialized dogs feel safe, they're able to check things out without being thrown into it. They can go at a pace where they know mom or dad's got their back. We can help our dogs overcome fear-based behaviors, but we have to make a point of that. To your point where during COVID, everyone's bound up in the house together. So many interesting research studies, Montel, coming out now about that, that because we're all using Lysol and cleaning products and not that brand, but we're all disinfecting everything all the time during COVID. So many cases of asthma and upper respiratory issues, including nasal cancers and a whole host of other air quality related disease processes are showing up in dogs and cats. Dogs and cats are great sentinels in terms of the chemical load of our homes. In fact, they're studying dogs and cats because they're naked and furry. They're basically swiffering, sweeping up all the whatever chemicals are in our homes. They're really good representations of how healthy or unhealthy our own lifestyles are. So during COVID, when everyone's not eating good food, no one's exercising appropriately, everyone's cooped up in a potentially toxic home, out of that, do we have a lot of emotional stress? Yeah, but we also have a lot of chemical stress in and on our animals. Well, you know, that was one thing that we tried our best not to do. We didn't use a lot, and we haven't, we still don't to today, use a lot of chemicals in here because I- So I, good. I, we got a brainwash today. We've got a brand new puppy. His name is Jackpot. And, um, you know, he's, he is such a little treasure. He just turned six months. Um, but we did realize that, you know, we made a little bit of a mistake. We didn't get him out of, we got him in at 10, uh, weeks and he came from a really, 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 really good reputable breeder in our small town that just cycles just very few um, litters a year, and um, almost every one of her dogs are show dogs. Um, and she did a really unbelievable job of, of pad training him and and acclimating him. I think the sounds and noises. But he and he did have uh, two sisters, and he was was really around other little puppies, so he got to play a little bit. But now we're starting to see that he is not as social as he should be. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really trust a lot of people. He will he will bark a little bit, stand back from you, and 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 look at you. Then he will walk over and let you put your hand down. And as long as you do it gently, he will. He's just as, as sweet as he can be. Um, but I, I'll tell you one thing: we 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 decided because of Max, our last dog who slept in our bed his entire life. We said, you know, Jackpot's going to be in a kennel, period. We're going to give him a little kennel. We went through seven different kennels because I thought maybe this one, he didn't like it, so he didn't want to stay in it. We put him in it. He would sleep for 20 minutes and then cry for two hours straight. And so we took him out of that one, got him a new one. Then we got him a new one. Then we got a new one. And it was, it was at the point where I'm telling you for at least – two and a half months, I don't think that I and my wife slept for more than three hours. 
it's, it, it's a little bit like a kid. It's like having a newborn yeah. kid. Like the same thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're exhausted. And you know, if, if the good news is if you work with dog lovers or, you know, you hang with dog lovers, everyone gets that. But if you don't have a lot of dog loving friends and you're like, dude, I'm so exhausted. You know, my dog cut me up. All the people are like, what? But it is just right. like having a newborn kid, right? It's identical. That's what I mean. <laughs> I, I got a crazy schedule. She's got a crazy schedule. Yeah. My schedule, you know, I have to tape every couple of days. Sure. Uh, days a week or uh, three or four days a week sometimes. So, you know, I got to look like I'm at least relatively rested. Yes. And finally, finally, <laughs> we, we did. We broke down. We couldn't do it anymore. I said, no, in the bed. Boom. In the bed. Said, since we put him in the bed, I'm telling you, the second now he's, he's, he will wake up. And I think it's because he's trying to be protected. We live in a condo complex. And, you know, there every now and then at two in the morning, there'll be a noise in the hallway. And he'll hear it. So he'll wake up. And I think he, he wants to be protective. So he'll try to go to the edge of the bed. But then he'll come back over and lay back down. Um, we've gotten the best sleep in life since we put them in the bed. And I believe that. And it's interesting because when we think about dogs evolution over the last 200 years, they have gone from being like outside, like farm dogs, right? Where they were outside or working dogs, which means back 200 years ago, our great, great, great grandparents had dogs around, but probably not in the bed. But in the last 150 years, they've gone from the barn to the mudroom, to the living room, to our beds. I mean, dogs have become vital parts of our families. Absolutely. And it's just as a, as a wellness veterinarian, it's so heartwarming to see. We're also starting to think, yes, of course, about their nutritional needs, but we're also having conversations like this, talking about PTSD or stress in dogs. And as much as people are like, oh my gosh, really, really? Our yeah. dog, yeah. really? Yeah, we are yeah. because, you know, are our, our, we hold there again, we hold our dogs captive in you know, I'm sure you have a beautiful, lovely home. We're still not giving our dogs a, a lot of free choices to make independent decisions. We still control when they go pee, where they go pee, what yes. they eat, yes. what, to, you know, if they're drinking, if they're drinking contaminated water, we're in charge of that. So my goal and job as a wellness veterinarian is to help every single pet owner in the world not have regrets. Because if you know enough to make good decisions, you will have less regrets later on. And I can't tell you the number of pet parents I have met, thousands that say, I wish I would have known then what I know now. Because usually we start digging into figuring out how does disease occur and what could I have done or what's a better diet? How much exercise does my dog need? What can I do to prevent plaque and tartar on the teeth? What can I do to prevent genetic predispositions from coming about? We typically don't dive into those conversations until there's something knocking on our health store. But if we can have those conversations before degeneration occurs, now we're preventing it. And that really is my passion as a veterinarian. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sad that when you say it that way, because I mean, honestly, we learned so much from Max that we're trying to now incorporate in what yes. we do with Jackpot. I mean, he gets only bottled water. Um, we, we've got him on no ifs, ands, or buts. There is no table processed food whatsoever. He's eating a, a very a raw diet from a, a particular um, chef here in the area that, that makes food for pets. Um, it's local um, and it's fresh. Um, it's wonderful. And, and you know what? We, we, we kind of overfed Max a little bit and we finally started to realize that, you know, we got a dog that's only, he's five pounds, three ounces. He yeah. will not get more than another maybe two ounces, maybe five, five. And he's got a stomach that's got to be only that big. So yeah. why are we trying to put this much food in that little teeny stomach? And, yes. you know, finally when we realize that, that I think has made some differences. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, 15 years from now, I will never regret the fact that he is in the bed. You know, exactly. that, I've, I've, I've had some people literally say, did you break down and let him get in the bed? I said, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm about a four and so is That's hate. right. You know what I mean? And that's I, right. That when he gets up in the morning, he comes and he, he he knows what time he wants to get up. He knows what he's got to do his thing. He'll come and start licking on my ears, looking on my head, or looking on my wife's face. And yes. we know he's got to go to the floor. He's got to go to the bathroom. And he, as soon as he gets down, he goes right to the bathroom. He does his business. You know, we feed him. Then he'll play for a little bit. Then he gets back in bed for a minute. Then he'll go back to sleep for a couple of seconds. And that magical hour of the morning that you have is just really good time for your whole family to bond, right? Those whole, like Saturday morning snuggles and kisses, they're the best. They're also what make us love dogs so much. Like dogs are a part of our families in ways that humans can't, you know, how you love your wife more than anything. But when you go out to get the mail and come back in, she's not like, honey, yeah, <laughs> woo 
You know, you, right. you do a garbage run and you don't get that, but your dog genuinely feels that way every right. single time he sees you, right? That, that's so, yep. yeah, yeah, dogs are magical. Yeah, like sometimes because she she of her job, she has to go away for a couple of days, and maybe for because of my job, I got to go away for a couple of days, and it's it's the best feeling in the world when you come home and he just goes nuts yes. for about five or ten minutes, and then he's like, okay, you're back, okay, good to go, yeah, okay. yeah. you're back, now stay here, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Now you believe in pre preventative care, which is common, I should say, you know. Um, with Max, we didn't do as good a job as we should have. I'm seeing it now. So now with Jackpot, he gets his teeth brushed every day or every, you know, I, we we took him to a vet and and, and the breed asked the breeder, the breeder said, you know, make sure you try to brush his teeth. And so well, how often do you do it? She goes, how often do you brush yours? And I thought about it and you're right. So yeah. why should we brush his as much as we brush ours? So he gets his teeth brushed every day. Max, when he got a little older, he was still 12 years old. And we had noticed from about nine to 12, he'd slowed down a little bit and we took him to the dentist or took him to the, the vet and they ended up having to pull out of his teeth. I pulled, you know, maybe 12 at one time. And, uh, but uh, in a day, he was like a little puppy again. Yeah. I realized, wow. So that's what, how bad it could be. Let's explain a little bit to people oral care for their pets. Well, certainly we know for humans that the mouth is this portal of potential infection. The same is true for, for pets as well. But dogs and cats, right, they lick their butts. Dogs eat poo. Dogs eat anything. So they have this constant stream of kind of bacteria party happening in their mouth. So in, in, in the wild, animals would be catching and killing prey and biting through bones that has the shearing action of chipping off plaque and tartar. Dogs do enjoy chewing. It's important that you match the chew toy to the size dog that you have. And so you're not going to fracture your dog's teeth. You also want to make sure you want to review what your chew toys are made out of. There's a lot of chew toys that have phthalates. You know, they're made of this they have plastics that can be endocrine disruptors for your dogs. You want to make sure you're giving them non-toxic things to chew on. But chewing will help remove plaque and tartar. But the premise is dogs and cats are accumulating bacteria in their mouth on a daily basis. And either you as their guardian, pet parent, owner, you either have to remove that plaque and tartar for, for them, give them something to do to remove plaque and tartar, or rely on your veterinarian to clean their teeth. There is this fourth option, which is do nothing till their teeth rot and then fall out of the mouth and or create systemic disease and infection. Don't do that. So my common sense approach is give dogs healthy, appropriate, non-toxic things to chew on because that's helping to brush their teeth for them. And then do exactly what you do at night, get them accustomed by desensitizing them to having their mouth worked on at night. And you can actually reduce the amount of plaque and tartar that is accumulating in your dog's teeth a lot. In fact, enough so that oftentimes you can push off those preventive cleanings from your veterinarian years down the road because you're doing literally the dirty work at home. So at night, just as you're doing, you're getting your puppy used to having this procedure done. He probably doesn't like it. He doesn't hate no. it. He just sits there. And it's so awesome because you'll be able to carry this really healthy nighttime ritual forward for the rest of his life. And he won't lose the dozen teeth that your last babe did, which means you are becoming a proactive mm. pet parent. That's really good. Yeah. I'm going to ask you that, that. I'm not, well, it is a product, but by, but by name, I guess there's many different brands. So I won't get the brand. What do you think of this Himalayan cheese? Boom. Is that okay? Yeah, so, yep. So these yak juice or anything yeah. made out of they can make uh, raw milk usually, um, you know, often they're from all over, but you can actually make them at home. We have a recipe on our website at how to make homemade Himalayan yak chews, but it's basically super hard cheese. And as long as your dog doesn't have a dairy allergy, I think it's fantastic. It's hard. So it provides that mechanical abrasion. So your dog can hold it and kind of grind and help remove the plaque and tartar on their teeth, which is good. You want to make sure that they don't get pieces off where it could become stuck or lodged. But I do like Himalayan yak chews because it, dogs usually love them and you can get them in different sizes. So you just want to make sure that you're not getting too small of a dog chew that a dog could swallow whole. But otherwise, I like them a lot. I got to tell you something that you hit it on the head. We have a, our last puppy, Max, was again a toy poodle, but he got up to 13 pounds. And excuse me, we gave him. Uh, what was one of these things that they call a busy bone? It was about this big. The thing was huge. I, I, it was no way I thought that he couldn't do anything but chew on it. Yeah. And we came back one night. We we took a heat traveled everywhere with us the same way that when we can, we take JP everywhere we go. And we were in California 
And we came back, we had an event to go to. It was a formal, so we couldn't take him. So we went to the event, came back, and we we literally, we don't leave in more than three hours. So we came back, and I'm looking around, and I'm noticing that Max is just laying there. He's not moving. Mm. One, what's up with you, dude? And he kind of made a little sound. And we both ran over to him immediately and started looking for his bone. He had shoved this thing this big and that big around in his throat. Down yeah. there, and it was it sitting stuff. We rushed into the animal hospital. Of course, they they gave him a um, an X ray, and they said yeah, he's got something really big lodged in his throat. Uh, and we want to just sit and watch it for a second because he's breathing around it, so he's okay. And we didn't want them to cut on him, so we yeah. just let's just let's just sit on it for a minute. And of course, he digested it, so it kind of went through him, and it made him sick. Like, yeah, a couple sure. Of days. But that's a beautiful part of cheese, like these yak chews, where at least it could break down with a bunch of stomach acid, unlike rawhide. Rawhides, which are like that traditional byproduct of the leather industry, which I really don't agree pets should eat at all. They're full right. of chemicals because it's leather byproduct and yep. they don't digest. They actually, they can just cause a blockage and your dogs can actually wow. die. You end up going to surgery because they can't digest it. But this brings me to a great point. If you're going to give your dog these edible bones, you want to get a really big bone because as they wear them down, when they start to get kind of soft and chewy and there's a lot of saliva and the dogs are really liking them, they're just going to try and swallow the whole darn thing. And that's exactly what Max did. He just was mm. like, this is so delicious. I'm going to eat the whole thing. Right. So what I would tell you is to err on the side of buying a bone that's kind of obnoxiously too big because as they whittle it down, when it needs to stick out of the mouth a couple inches or you got to throw it like, just don't even, if you have a potential gulper that could swallow a chew hole, buy a big one. And when it gets down to be short, you got to pitch it because it's too wow. much of a choking hazard. Yeah. Sure. No kids. I'm glad you said that. Now, of course, that's the difference that we do with JP. Yeah. He has is, is, I mean, he's a little guy. He's five pounds. Yes. Though he, he's tall. He's got really long legs, way longer legs than our last puppy. But, um, you know, that, that bone is, is, Three times the size. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing that I love that you said you were doing with JP is you are feeding him a fresh food diet, Montel. And that's one of the best gifts, which I just got back last week. I was lecturing at the vet school at Helsinki in Finland, and they're doing some research about feeding puppies fresh food as you're doing with JP. If you can feed a puppy, if you could feed the pregnant mama fresh food and then give litter to the babies that eat fresh food, it can reduce the incidence of allergies later in life by up to 80%, like crazy wow. stats. So what's awesome is that you, I don't know if you ever fed kibble to your old dog, but you're doing it right with this dog in that there are only two kind of classifications of food. There are foods approved for human consumption. So the chef that is making the diet that you are feeding your dog is using a recipe for dogs so that you know it's nutritionally complete, but they're using human grade ingredients, like stuff you'd buy from the grocery store. That's yes. awesome. Everything that you would otherwise be buying, Montel, from a big box store that comes out of a bag that you scoop out, you know, you put the kibble out of the pantry and in your dog's bowl, that is called feed grade. That's those foods, 99% of pet foods on the market contain ingredients that are not approved for human consumption, which means everything that fails inspection goes into pet food. So the, the big blessing you've given JP is you have him off feed grade kibble, which is basically ultra processed junk food. It does sustain life because there's multivitamins, synthetic multivitamins in there. But the quality of food that most dogs eat is horrible. And you are feeding your dog freshly prepared, nutrient dense, real food. And that's one of the best immune gifts you can give your puppy as well as epigenetic gifts, which means all dogs have a set of genes that can be up or down regulated. But one of the best research studies that just came out, came out of Helsinki vet school. And what they said is you can change your dog's genetic potential for the better by feeding them fresher foods. And you're doing that with your puppy and I'm proud of you. So I don't know if that was intentional. I don't that know if you think that yeah, that's beautiful. You know, we, we ended up losing Max. He ended up passing away from cancer that literally came on mm. and metastasized in three days and five days later, she was gone. Gosh. We were, and we, we helped him on his journey because yes. he was he was getting, you could see, it was it just, he was, we, 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 we sent him to a, 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 he was with a sitter for one night, had been home, had gone to the doctor two weeks before that, came back with a glowing checkup. He was doing really well.
He came back from the sitter. And again, one of those things where you just noticed something's not right. Max, mm-hmm. what's up? So Max would come over and play a little bit and looking at him and thinking to myself, you know, it's just something not right. So we took him to the vet and they did an extra on him and he had a little mass that they thought, man, could have been a cyst or something. And then the vet dug a little deeper and said, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I'd love you to take him back and do another time. And they looked again and it was a bigger mass than we thought it was. And it had spread to a couple of places in his body. This is on the yeah. first night. We knew that. Gosh. And then by the third day, it spread throughout his body. And mm. he literally, you could, he was just, he would look at us like, you know, I don't want to go through this. No, yeah. I don't want yeah. you. You know, one of one of the best tips that a vet said was that it's always better to be a day yeah. early than a day late. Yes. And, you know, you, you understand having been through this incredibly painful process of oh. knowing that your beloved's walking down a dark hall and there isn't light at the end of the tunnel, that every day his quality of life is going to be worse. You made an incredibly difficult, but really important decision to not let the suffering continue. And it's, it's excruciating, I know, but such an important decision. That's one that I've been sharing with everybody trying to tell people that I know that have pets is again, it is better to make that decision the day early. Yeah, you know, you could have had two more days. Well, what is his life going to be like for those next two days? Yes. And we kept noticing that, you know, again, his his, his gait was was starting. To, I mean, he went from a vibrant little guy to like barely being able to move in three days. And I yeah. was no, we're not going to do this then. And it was the most painful thing that I in my life have ever done. Is by the way, we took a, we were initially going to go ahead and go ahead and get another puppy, but we said no, it wasn't time. And you know, timing's been right now. I mean, JP is just such a treasure. Uh, just uh, got him groomed today. He was he's 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 having fun in the other room. I don't know if you hear him, but he's out there going nuts. That's so awesome. It's so yeah. good. And you know, when you think Montella about um, I say happy, 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 happy dead, because that's how I want to go. I don't want my body to fall apart piece by piece. The beautiful thing about Max is that he had great vibrant, 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 not so great three days, and then right, you know, right back to being his full energetic, beautiful self energy. You know what I mean? He, his transition was three days of not so good in the whole scope of life. That's pretty darn good. It is. You know, I tell you the only thing about it, the experience that I would suggest to people who are tuned in listening is understand that when you euthanize a pet like that, when you do do that, if you have to, their eyes don't close. We think that their eyes are going to close when they pass, but they are staring right at you. And when they pass, they're still staring right at you. Mm-hmm. That I wish our vet had said that to us, and she said it mm-hmm. after the fact. Oh, by the way, they don't close. I'm like, I wish you yeah. would have said that ten yeah. minutes ago. It's you true. know, would have prepped me a little bit better. You know what true. I mean? True. You know, and I have made several videos about I I call it my winding down series. If you've ever watched a person die, it's the same thing. They don't close their eyes. They they can gasp. They can get twitchy. It's not if you don't know what to expect, it can kind of totally freak you out. Yeah. Um, and I think that sometimes we have um, like preemptive grief, preemptive stress or PTSD. When we know we have to make the decision of euthanasia, sometimes we get so freaked out about all that could be going on. If we can learn enough that we understand the process and we know what to expect or ask our veterinarian to tell us, it'll help really reduce the amount of anxiety we have about it. Yeah. yeah I, I would I hope do you have a chapter in your book about that. We we don't we don't have a chapter about about making the the euthanasia decision, but we do talk about that last chapter and what needs to happen in terms of preparation. Actually, uh, several stages through life preparation that if we're able to plan before we need an emergency crisis plan, if we're able to lay out a strategic map to wellness, then the amount of heartbreak and trauma should be minimal. But we still want to plan for those unexpected things that can come up. And that takes us back to what you were talking about, the common sense approach to both humans and pets is well-being and, and you know, how we should be doing more things, not necessarily in the guise of prepping for sick care, but well care, right? Yes. 
Yeah. And you know, that's one of the things kind of how this book came about was Rodney, my co-author, he's obsessed with the oldest dogs in the world. So he's like, listen, I'm going to go and I'm going to find the oldest dogs. He found a 30 year old Kelpie in Australia, wow. 26, 27 year old dog. So his job was to interview the, the owners of these exceptionally long lived dogs. Now I'm obsessed with human longevity science. So he went and got the interviews, like what all these, what these owners did do and what the owners didn't do. So we have this amazing amount of data and raw material about what these dogs ate, what their chemical exposure was, how far they exercised, everything you can imagine. We took this bank of incredible information from the oldest dogs in the world, and we gave it to the top longevity experts around the world. And here's the beautiful part. We have, we interviewed Nobel prize winners. We interviewed the head of the Harvard longevity lab. We went around the world talking to the top experts who reverse engineered these ancient dogs. And then we put the science together with basically a protocol for what the top people in the world say we need to be doing to intentionally extend our dog's health span and hopefully lifespan. That's the premise of the book. So we were just the messengers of all the science, which was really wonderful. But the cool part is I didn't think as a veterinarian, I would be able to get into these top tier labs because these are like the top people are in the world. I sent emails and I said, you know, I'm Karen Becker and I'm writing this book on longevity and I really love dogs and you're doing dog research. Is there any chance you would talk to me? Montel, not a single scientist said no. Every single one of these amazing humans said, I love dogs and I think it's cool you're writing this book. So we had these amazing people give us their background, their information, their expertise, tours of their labs, because they recognize that dogs are living in the same environments that we are. Dogs are really reflections of our good or bad lifestyle choices. And by learning and using dogs as kind of human health barometers, dogs have the same incidence of obesity, cancer, diabetes, organ degeneration, autoimmune diseases. They have the same incidence as humans. So by us looking at dogs, we're able to, yes, potentially look at what we can be doing for ourselves. But the beautiful part for people that love dogs is we can apply this science now to help our dogs live healthier lives today. And that really was why we wrote the book. Wow. And now what are some of the biggest problems that you see with our companion animals and what most people could do better? Well, we laid out kind of a DOGS strategy, which makes it easy. So D is for diet and nutrition. You know, as veterinarians, we're the last group of professionals that say feed only ultra processed snack foods from birth till death. It's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that veterinarians still recommend feeding a little brown pellet and never feed anything else. That's asinine nutrition recommendations. I, I, will, I, will, tell you, I will tell you, it was really crazy that when we got, uh, and, and again, our, our jackpot came from one of the top breeders in the country. And, um, you know, she bought, she sent us home his bag of kibbles and, you know, some freeze dried raw, some food that was freeze dried raw, I guess it, it's, it's a really good brand. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought, why kibbles? Why would we want to give him kibbles? Yeah. And, you know, we still have, I think a, a huge bag of them in a the closet that I haven't been using them, you know, yeah. cause uh, it's like, I, I just don't, I, I don't eat potato chips all day. So why would I give them, you know what I mean? Right. And so, but now there are people that because it's cheap and easy, they do feed their kids through the dollar menu every day. I mean, I have clients that, that feed themselves through the dollar menu and in turn, but, but as a wellness doctor, I have to say kibble is one way to sustain life. Your dog isn't going to die of malnutrition eating kibble, but they're also not going to thrive, right? It's fast food. So the first common sense strategy tip is your dog needs to eat more than one brand of food his whole life. Like we know our microbiome, the beneficial, good, healthy bacteria inside of our GI tracts thrive by eating fresher foods, less processed foods, and a whole variety of different foods. Same is true for dogs. So yeah, you want to switch up slowly and gently. You want to switch up the type of food, the texture of the food, the different types, you know, fruits and veggies and different protein sources. You want to have a varied diet just as you would with your two-legged kids. There's a a way to do that so that your dog doesn't get diarrhea. And there's a way to do it to intentionally diversify their microbiome because your dog's immune system is primarily located in their GI tract. So making your dog's GI tract strong and resilient is a really good idea. The O of the strategy. So we have diet and nutrition. O stands for optimal movement. And even your little 5.5 little guy, he needs, and you know, this daily aerobic exercise. So you're already doing it. You, you, I'm so proud of you. You came up with this 
this exercise plan to walk the mezzanine, but that good on you because people say, what am I supposed to do? I say, walk your apartment stairs, do whatever. I mean, I end up, people can swim their little dogs in their bathtub. You need to get your dog out every day and help them move their body. And so recognizing that dogs need to move their bodies, not just to maintain tendon, muscle, ligament resiliency to maintain their muscle mass, but they need it for their emotional and mental well-being as well. Dogs need to get outside and move their bodies, sniff and smell things. It's important. The G is for genetic predispositions. And we know that just because a dog is born with a set of genes doesn't mean that they're going to express all those horrible genes. Our dog's environment uh, is playing into their genetics. And that entire field of study is called epigenetics. And we, as owners, can influence our dog's genetics by minimizing chemical exposure, feeding them better quality foods, minimizing carcinogens in the environment. So we talk about to do what we can to help shape our dog's genetics so that some of those expressions don't have to occur. And the S, Montel, is for stress. And this was the thing that I think was most interesting to me when I was writing the book. Yeah, we have stress, like emotional stress. We've talked about that. But there's mental, emotional stress from dogs being inside all day, and we need to address that. But there's also chemical stress, like using household sprays and using room fresheners and using all of the things that we spray on our dog beds to try and make them smell better. Those are negatively affecting our dog's detoxification systems. And I didn't realize the depth and breadth of that until we started talking to toxicologists. So looking at all the ways that dogs have stress was really impactful to me when I was writing the book. Dogs are just as stressed as we are. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that plays, I guess that plays a, a big role into, you know, I read recently that, you know, the cancer rate among dogs was 50%. That seems crazy. Like one in every two dogs will get cancer. Yeah. Is stress also part of that? Yes. In fact, that is one of the research, uh, Nico Kublini out of Hungary. She was the amazing PhD that did that research that a dog, if a dog has unaddressed emotional or mental stress, or even physiologic stress. Let's say that they're, they're obese their whole lives. They have arthritis. Then you throw in there, they have separation anxiety. You put that together and all of those dogs are releasing more cortisol, more stress hormones. And the longer a dog has perpetual chronic stress and the amount of cortisol or stress hormones that they're secreting, that actually is enough Montel to negatively impact their immune system. And there has been a correlation to degenerative diseases like cancer occurring that are tied into cortisol and stress hormones in dogs. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, okay, so we got to make sure we can see if we can reduce their stress and there are ways to do that. And then you were talking about, you know, their diet. And I think the diet now, I, you see a lot of ads now on television and you see, like, you hear from a lot of people saying, well, you know, I try to make sure I just prepare them what I prepare and I make sure that I'll use the seasoning in it, that kind of thing. But not all human food is good for dogs. Listen, I'm so proud of you for bringing this up. Not only is not all human food not good for dogs, some human foods are toxic to dogs, right? So one thing that we need to be clear of is I'm a huge believer in feeding human grade food, the quality of meats that we feed to our two-legged kids or our four-legged you know, we don't need to be feeding anything rendered or that has disease state or abscesses, tumors, all the things that goes into the rendering plant that are not approved for human consumption. That's what goes into most pet foods. I believe that pets deserve better quality food than that. However, you are correct. We also have to recognize that dogs and cats have clear minimum nutrient requirements that we have to meet. So what is not cool is that people say, well, tonight I'm going to have rice and veggies. I'm going to feed my dog rice and veggies. That's cool for one night, but dogs have very clear nutritional requirements. So one of the things that's important, it's great that you cook for your dogs at home. You have to follow a recipe that you know meets your dog's minimum nutritional requirements. You cannot guess. So I'm really glad you bring up that point. Human food is great if it's biologically appropriate, which means low carb, high in protein, and a low to medium amount of healthy fats, but dogs don't have a, carb a carbohydrate requirement. So we shouldn't be feeding dogs a ton of white, you know, no rice, pasta. There's just not a reason for it. And so you want to make sure that the recipe is complete, nutritionally complete, and you want to make sure that the recipe is suitable for a dog's biologic nutrition requirements. 
Okay, so uh, peas are okay for dogs. Yeah, peas. Yeah, so it's so peas are fine. Peas have gotten a bad rap, Montel, because peas are all of the legumes. This grain and grain-free argument—it's quite the drama in the pet food world. Hopefully, you've not been in—you've not followed it. But I've heard a couple of this. Oh my gosh! So everyone's all pea phobic. Peas are not toxic for you and I. And they're not toxic for dogs either. Peas do contain a substance called lectins, you know, and some people and some dogs are lectin sensitive. So feeding some peas now and then is totally fine. Do I recommend that you rotate through a variety of different vegetables? Yes. The only vegetables you don't feed to dogs are onions and the only fruits, no grapes or raisins, right? Those are on the no-no list. But uh, otherwise, you could feed some peas. Frozen peas are great training treats, but you don't want to make a dog uh, a vegan, in my opinion. It's not, as a wildlife biologist and as a veterinarian, it's not wise for dogs or cats to be vegans. I love vegan. I'm a vegetarian. I'm not knocking vegan anything, but you have to match it up to a dog's evolutionary biology, and they are not vegan. So dogs have not evolved. Yeah, And it's species kind of appropriate, correct? So a species appropriate, like goats, species appropriate diet would be vegan. Horses are natural vegans. That's awesome. Dogs and cats are not biologically naturally vegan. And I don't believe it's our place to try and force them to be vegan. So if you want a vegan pet, get a rabbit. They're naturally vegan and they thrive on vegan diets. Dogs and cats don't thrive on vegan diets. They can survive but they survive with metabolic health consequences that eventually cause health and lifespan issues. So I'm not a fan of trying to force our ethical opinions on a different species. Gotcha. And especially with the fact that, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I was talking to a specialist one time who worked in trying, or they're certified specialists working in coming up with foods for dogs. And they were, they were talking to me about the fact that, you know, what you have to remember is in the wild, Lots of times, dogs don't actually go and kill their prey. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. find their prey dead. Scavengers, you dog, right? Yes, they are. They are. In fact, dogs are dogs are opportunistic scavengers. So if they can find an if they can find something dead and not have to exert energy, they'll eat it. If they can find something even partially rotten, my dogs have brought home things from. They'll find out in bushes just disgusting, half rotten carcasses of. You know, rabbits that have been right. hit by a car and they're like, look what I found. And it's just, <laughs> but they do that because they haven't evolved not to, right? They're, they're yeah. not bringing me a giant zucchini saying I scored a zucchini. <laughs> they're, they're bringing me a decayed rabbit carcass, which is completely disgusting, but that is their natural evolutionary history. And they can digest that. They can, it's gross, but they can. And th that is, they, they, in fact, they have the stomach acid designed to process that. So dogs can eat really gross things. I don't advocate that. That's kind of what they're eating when they're eating the vast majority of dog foods on the market. So I do like the fact that we now have human grade, better quality foods for dogs to choose from all these micro startups that are really kind of sweeping the industry, including probably your awesome dog chef. It's wonderful that we have all these great fresh food, biologically appropriate options now that we we didn't have 20 years ago. It's awesome. And you know, you know, and you did say something earlier about that, that I, I'm going to put it on the board and we'll talk to my wife about it in about 15 minutes when she gets home. Um, you know, we were serving him. He was eating a, a fish. It was salmon. Um, it's got some peas. It's got a little bit of, of brown rice and a couple of other vegetables in it. That's all chopped up real nice and fine. And we tried to using the same chef, switch him over to eat his beef uh, formulation. And within two days, now part of the problem was, I think we were overfeeding him a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we were giving him a little bit too much, but he definitely didn't seem to adjust to it well in the first two days. Now, should we go ahead and try again? Cause he's been on a steady fish thing. Yeah, you should try again, but Montel, just take longer than two days. And because he's he's a young puppy, his microbiome is not super, you know, diversified yet. Instead of weaning him onto a brand new diet in two days, take out 10% of his fish diet and put in 10% of beef and then watch his poop for a day. And yeah. then after two, three days, then do 20% beef, 80% fish, watch his poop for a couple of days, then do 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50. And let's 10, let's spend two weeks weaning him onto his new beef diet. And then yeah. no gas, no farty, no diarrhea. Everyone's happy. And that microbiome has a brand new set of food that's going to nourish and replenish itself um, to be more diversified and more resilient because you're offering him different prebiotic fiber 
fibers, different proteins, a different set of nutrients, which is good for his GI tract. Gotcha. Okay. That's because we thought maybe it was just that he didn't like beef, but I guess that we were trying to do it too quickly. Too too fast. Yeah. Too fast. Okay. And you know, and and I should say that the person who owns the particular place that we buy the food from said that does. He said, you know, you got to make sure that if you switch them from one formulation to the next, take your time because you know, they, their GI tract won't get used to it. And so we said, okay, we thought take your time that we'll, we'll give them one of these in breakfast and we'll do the other yeah. one in dinner. And that wasn't enough. Well, and I will tell you that that is ultimately, like that is just like um, our GI tracts, we are designed to eat something different for breakfast and different for dinner. And as humans not have explosive diarrhea or puke, we're just that, I mean, a healthy GI tract, you should be able to do that. I do do that with my dogs. I'm able to feed them a different, an entirely different food. I can go through 20 different foods and what menus and they have guts of steel. Now your puppy isn't there yet, but that's going to be our goal. Our goal is to make JP, oh, you know, as he grows, when you're having a carrot, give him a little tiny bite of carrot. All those dented blueberries, uh, Dr. David Sinclair told me that they actually have more polyphenols than the perfect blueberries because they've gone through some trauma. So all of those soft fruits that, you know, you look at and you think, oh, it's too soft for me feed it to JP. Every single tiny bite of fresh food or veggie that you can offer him, just no carbs, but every fruit and veggie from your fridge, minus onions and grapes, every tiny bite of food you're giving him, you're diversifying his GI tract. And so as you begin offering him more tiny little bites of food, you're going to use them as training treats. So when he comes up to you and he's like, Hey dad, Hey dad, you're in the kitchen. When you're chopping up, you know, carrots or asparagus, the bottom half of broccoli, chop the stems of the broccoli really fine, have him do a sit stay and give him a little tiny piece of broccoli. He'll love it. You're using up your veggies from your fridge. He's getting all these freeze enzymes and super green foods and polyphenols and antioxidants that his body needs. And we're giving him all those prebiotic fibers that are good for his gut. So give him little bites of new food throughout the day. And you're well on your way to helping to have a faster transition next time you switch his diet. Wow, that's so, so interesting. That we, I'll, we're on it tomorrow. Starting All right. Tomorrow. Look at that. All right. So tell that's me, awesome. I, I read something about you're into animal acupuncture. I'm a I'm a licensed animal acupuncturist. Yes. No. Well, and part of the reason that I got that training, I'm also a, like a physical therapist for animals. And oftentimes I'm, you're able, especially with paralyzed animals, you're able to use acupuncture to get, kind of jumpstart an animal's uh, nervous system. And so I don't use, I don't use acupuncture or electroacupuncture with all my patients, but for some conditions, acupuncture can be quite good for the nervous system and a variety of other conditions. Okay. And uh, tell me a little bit more about your brand new book. You just, you told me before we got started that it is available in what, 14, 15 different languages? Yes, it is 15, which is awesome. And I was not expecting that. It's called The Forever Dog and it is now published in 15 languages. I'm pretty fired up about that because that shows me how many people around the world feel just like you and I do about doing all we can to help give our dogs the best opportunity to have a vibrantly healthy disease-free life. And I knew that there was a lot of proactive animal owners out there wanting this. I didn't realize the number of them. So it's super heartwarming that the book has done as well as it has. It just is a reflection of people's commitment to their dogs, which I love. And it's on Amazon right now. You can get it there. Where else can you get you it? You can get it at any bookstore, you know, at Barnes and Nobles, Target, Walmart, Amazon, your local indie bookstore, even better. And you, you also uh, put out a daily newsletter. Is that right? I do. Yep, I do. And you can learn more. So my website is drkarenbecker.com. The Forever Dog book is just foreverdog.com. And I do do a daily um, free newsletter blog. Um, and I do post that on my Facebook page every day as well. Just tips and tricks, um, ideas. I do a lot of uh, recaps of recent articles and new journal information coming about that I find interesting and fascinating. Really, my approach is this. Whatever we can do in a non-toxic common sense way to help minimize the potential of disease occurring in our animals, like why not? If it's easy and simple, why would we not do what we can to prevent these things from happening so we're not having to deal with them later? So I just try and gather that and share it with all my people. Incredible. Look, you know, Doc, I, I would love to have you back. Can you give me another hour? Awesome. Let's time? do it. Let's do it. Sure. I mean, truthfully, I think there's some information that's going to be good. You know, it's really funny. Um, I was taping yesterday and I taped the last two days on, on a 
different set and shows that, that I do. It's a show that I do. It's called The Balancing Act. And so I took JP to work with me. So he was he was in the studio. Uh, and, and I took some pictures and put it up. And um, or some of my, my folks put it up on social media. And we got like this incredible number of hits. So I know that I have a lot of followers out there that would really, really, really love to hear more from you. So yes. I'd love to have you back on a later date. Is that okay? Let's, let's do it. Sounds wonderful. And I, I love it that you are... Um, as in love with your dogs, as, as we all are, I love that you are making time to make this an important topic for your audience, because I think it's beautiful. It also goes to show you that your dog is a vital member of your family. And I love that as well. And, you know, you, I know I wanted to, to hit on some more information, especially information about some common foods that are in the home that are poisonous to dogs and cats, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I'm going to do that holding you to your promise. You're going to come back and let's, let's make sure that we can help make our, our four-legged friends have a better life. Beautiful. Absolutely. So anything else you want to add real quick before we go? I, I'm just fired up that we had this opportunity. I think we should talk again. Um, your dog is going to get into the squirrely teenager phase right about now. So right. between now and the next year, you're going to have all the cystic questions. When you get to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to Karen. We'll set up another <laughs> because <laughs> you're going to be there in four months or less. It'll be quicker <laughs> than that. It'll be way quicker <laughs> than that. I want to tell you that. So I got to thank you so much, Karen, for being a part of the show today. And I'm going to thank all of you. This was Dr. Karen Becker. Make sure you share this with everybody you know, because this is really important information that you can use, especially if you are a pet parent, okay? So do take care of yourself, be well, and we'll see you on the next Free Thinking. Be well, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments. Thank you.